Join us for our first virtual event of 2021, After Dark, Open Finance, Fact or Fantasy. Open finance is still a pretty new concept, but what opportunities and risks does it present? Find out how your business can leverage open finance as we bust some of the biggest myths about this trend at our After Dark event on the 17th of March. Stay tuned for some of the guests who'll be joining us and register now to save your spot for free at bit.ly forward slash After Dark Open Finance. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you the Khalifa Fintech Review. How can we make sure the UK Fintech stays at the top of its game? Stripe team up with both Mark Carney and Afterpay, and singer Michael Bolton wants you to trade with public.com. Yes, really. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 506 of Fintech Insider. I am here today with my colleague and 11FS co-host for the day, uh, Kate Moody. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm well. How on earth is it the end of February already? I've literally no idea how that happened. Yeah, um, no idea. I've given up on what day it is, what month it is, and all sorts of stuff at this stage. It's just uh, it time just seems to be uh, evaporating in front of us, doesn't it? But you had a good week anyway, right? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, working on some some interesting projects at the moment. So uh, yeah, lots to keep us busy. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, I mean, it will be it'll be sunny and summer before we even know it, won't it? Which will be uh, fantastic. And uh, life in lockdown definitely feels better when it's a bit sunnier, doesn't it? So uh, see what happens next. Uh, as always, we are joined, albeit right now remotely, by some super duper awesome guests. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show Ron Khalifa, OBE, who is the chairman of Network International and Future Learn, as well as formerly holding positions of CEO and vice chairman at world pay that's one hell of a title there ron that i've given you as a build-up but welcome to fintech insider it's great to have you on thank you looking forward to having the conversation uh, and obviously i mean it's been of a bit of a big i mean there's a review named after you you know that's serious when there's a review named after you right so really looking forward to sort of digging into it in terms of where we are and and actually your your findings and what that means for for uk fintech so uh, we'll definitely be coming to you a lot uh, as the show goes on and, and making a return to the show we've got charlotte croswell who is the ceo over at innovate finance how are you doing charlotte I'm um, all good. Yeah, great to be back. Um, wish, wish at one point we'll get there in person, but uh, but from now uh, I'm back to being a student, back in my bedroom. It seems for twenty hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? Uh, like uh, I, I miss those days, don't you? Like life was so simple. Like it seems so. It seems so easy when you were back in student days on it. But uh, I mean, I, I at this stage, I think we're all in uh, a similar boat. I know you're not, Kate, but uh, it's all I can do right now is just my kids don't burst into the office. Quite frankly, so uh, if that happens, I'm sure. None of the listeners will know about it because Alex will edit it perfectly. But uh, but yeah, we uh, we keep moving on. All right, guys, let's let's jump on with the show then. So first up, and uh, by no surprise on this one, it is the thing that has happened this week is the Khalifa FinTech Review. Obviously, very excited to have Rod himself. But ahead of that, just a bit of a recap of what this is. So nearly a, a year ago, Rishi Sunak revealed in his first budget as Chancellor of the Exchequer, uh, included a launch of an in-depth review into the UK's FinTech sector. And this was spearheaded by you, Ron. I feel really weird talking about you like you're not here, but you're obviously here. Um, and the main aim of this review was to identify what more the ind- 
industry and government could do to support the growth and competitiveness of the sector in the UK. Ron, we'll sort of get into the the findings a little bit in terms of what you've discovered and and actually the the sort of focal points of the report. But I mean, where do you even start with something like this? Because that must have been a hell of a phone call you got to say, hey, we'd love you to look into this. And, you know, what was the first day on this job? I think the first day was just like, oh, my God, what am I going to do here? Um, And the, the reality is that this is essentially a question of identifying, defining a strategy for a sector which is growing. So as you say, it it was quite a a challenge to try and and structure it in a way that would ensure that we thought about it through the right lenses. And the lenses that I chose to focus on were essentially five chapters, let me call them that. Um, The first one was skills and talent. The second one was investment. The third one was on policy. Uh, The next one was on leveling up. Next one was on international competitiveness and attractiveness. So I looked at it through those five lenses and took the view that, you know, we've got a huge opportunity here simply because fintech is such a misunderstood term. You know, many think of it as a niche activity. And I quite often refer to the fact when when I first started this, that this is not about two people in Shoreditch playing with an iPad who think that they're going to become a billionaire. This is about real businesses with real customers, with real revenues, and frankly, real jobs in terms of the people that they're employing. Because financial services is changing and fintech is changing financial services. So it was with that lens that I started to think about um, what we were trying to do. That's a a difficult task to set out on. And, And as you say, in terms of those focal areas, the focal points of the findings, I mean, obviously, you know, from 2008 onwards, the industry was forever really changed. And and as you say, it was the decisions that were made in each of those slices that have really led to the success in the industry as we've seen it now. And as you say, it's, uh, you know, fintech changing financial services and financial services affecting and impacting fintech. So sort of unpick a little bit more for us what those things mean then. So when you say policy and regulation, how does that manifest itself in terms of the uh, either what has really made us successful so far or or what do we need to do to maintain it? Because there's so much in regulation, there's so much in policy, but I don't want to sort of uh, labour the point, but like what makes us special, really? Yeah, look, I think I think what makes us special is that it's a, it's a large market opportunity. In a fintech today is worth about £110 billion globally. By 2030, it's forecast to grow to £380 billion, three times today's growth. We're dominant in terms of our market share. We've got a 10% market share um, globally. And our strength, I think, is underpinned by several factors. The first one is that we've got a, a significant amount of investment that is put into the UK fintech sector. Last year, despite the pandemic, over £4 billion was invested $4 billion, forgive me, was invested uh, last year. And that was way ahead of our European counterparts. And actually, if you think of it through a slightly different lens, the level of investment in the UK was more than the next four European countries combined. If we were at 4.1, the next one was Germany at 1.4 billion. So you can see that people are um, uh, thinking about this and actually wanting to invest. The second thing is that we are we are very, very fortunate in the capabilities that exist in the UK in terms of financial services and technology talent. And that kind of fusion is a powerful way to think about how this is going forward. Thirdly, um, you know, we've, we've been 
We've been the pioneers in many ways in terms of fintech, in terms of we've set the benchmark for policy-led interventions, um, you know, key initiatives such as the FCA regulatory sandbox, open banking. Those things have come out of the UK. They were born here. You know, they were created by people who may be listening to this or others. So when you start to look at the opportunities that it presents, it's about keeping our global leadership, but also about growth. You know, it's, it's interesting to see what other countries are doing. If our regulatory sandbox was the first one launched in 2017, it was launched and first used in that zone. Now there are 50 5 sandboxes around the world. And when we've gone around asking people about, well, what are you doing? How do you think about fintech? Whether it's in Australia, in the States, in Canada, France, etc., they all say the same thing. We are watching what you do and we copy what you do but we put resource behind it, we put effort behind it, we kind of coordinate and get organized. So that's a big message and, and a learning as part of the work that we've done. The other thing is that I think demand from small businesses, from consumers, from corporates, are all keen users of FinTech. Everybody's using FinTech without realizing they're using FinTech. You know, it might be to transfer money around the world, it might be supporting SME lending, it might be banking the un unbanked. But something like 70% of the UK's digitally active adults are now using the service of at least one fintech company. And then finally, I guess COVID has done nothing apart from accelerate the adoption of digital activity, um, you know, from Zoom calls or podcasts that we're now having to kind of go through and, you know, we can't, we can't meet in the same way to online banking. But the stat that I was staggered at when I first started doing this was that in the very first month of lockdown last year, there was something like 6 million people, 12% of the adult population, downloaded a banking app for the first time in that first month of lockdown. So we've sort of started on a journey of behavioral change that actually implies and suggests to me that we're not going to go back. So that's why it's important. And we've got to kind of make sure that we keep our place in the world for this because it's a sector that employs people. It's a sector that's underpinning financial services, as I said earlier. And it's actually our place in the world. Yeah, it's in terms of where this. I mean, that, that's yeah. that's amazing because, as you say, the export of great ideas. You know, the the things that we've seen in HKMA, the things that we've seen with Maz, the like globally, the impact that actually the changes that happened here have had have, have not just been great for the UK economy and the UK, you know, UK jobs and UK ultimately uh, the competitor landscape has shifted quite dramatically. So the competition mandate that the FCA has and actually being able to be in a place where we're really creating competition in the market, like that's just been so good for here. But actually the ripples of that out into uh, the rest of the planet has been amazing to see as well. So, uh, I mean, Charlotte, Kate, I'm going to bring you in on this in a minute because this is this is a lot of fun, but I know you guys want to get in on this as well. But it's like, so how do we maintain that, Ron? Like actually, because obviously we've got, I mean, Brexit, we've got COVID, we've got, I think we're going through all of the plagues at this point, you know, we've got all of the different things that are happening. Uh, and then if you throw in, I don't know, IR35 on the, the impact that that can have on talent multiplied by Brexit, how do we maintain that? What's, what's, the, what's the way in which we've established this leadership position and the Bank of England, the FCA, the government and talent and investment and uh, opportunity? There's so much that's happened in the UK. How do we not throw away this leadership position that we've got? Yeah, look, and I think I think it's a really important point because there is a danger of not necessarily throwing it away, 
but letting others catch up on something which is a natural place for us to win, a natural place for us to win. And if you listen to the, uh, the way Australia talk about it, they've got a goal, a stated goal, for Australia to be a leading digital economy by 2030. If you talk to the guys in Singapore, their goal is to be the international hub and the regional leader in terms of fintech innovation. Macron in France has you know, made it very overt that he wants to increase the profile of tech entrepreneurs in terms of fintechs. So this is really important that we kind of do something about it. As you say, there are threats, there are risks. You know, competition is there, Brexit is there, COVID is there. But actually, I think we can cope with that. And more importantly, there are opportunities. The opportunities lies in jobs, in terms of, I think FinTech is embedded across the UK with the potential to create high income tech-based employment and continue to becoming a real strong engine for leveling up across the country, as well as playing a huge part in terms of upskilling and retraining. In terms of trade, you know, we've got to enable FinTechs to reach global scale. We've got some fantastic businesses that have grown here, that have come here to do business. They've grown here, they've created jobs, and now they want to make sure that they can reach scale. We've got to help them with that by helping them to access international markets and continue to lead on regulation, on standard setting in an environment which is fast moving. And thirdly, you know, inclusion and recovery is a big part of it. We've got to support citizens and small businesses and you know, consumers to help give them access to better, cheaper, more efficient ways to do business. So you know, we talk about building back better fintech plays to all of those agendas and, and all of those opportunities. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it's it's so interesting to see, as you say, there's so much that, that's been done. There's so many different players in this. You know, I really think the success of the UK landscape has been a, um, uh, we describe it as almost like the Galapagos Islands. It's like a, a unique set of circumstances that created all of these opportunities and all of these things to grow. Uh, and actually understanding it is half of the battle, really, in terms of actually, but protecting it is super, super important to uh, not just, uh, as you say, Ron, not just the aren't we great, we're the UK and we're doing really well, but fundamentally there's so many jobs that are in this and actually end users who use financial services products are so much better off now because actually of the the competition creation that's actually in the in the market. So uh, at that at that point, Charlotte, bring bring you into the conversation uh, on on this is this is a really important moment, you know, and actually taking stock of what has made us successful and actually what can continue to make us successful in the future in terms of uh, you know this community that we've created around financial services and fintech in in the UK. And I know specifically saying the UK, as, as Ron has, has pointed out, this is a UK opportunity, not just a, a London opportunity. So um, what, what do you think in terms of the findings and, uh, and what do you think in terms of the, our opportunity to really build across these foundations that we've got? Thanks, David. Um, I like to think of it as fintech is getting to the point where it's at this pivotal moment. It's at the end of what I call phase one. We have tested the theories. If you think back to 2008 when fintech was really born, we've now had over a decade to show that actually it's embedded into financial services. So whether that's business to consumers, like some of the big brands you all know, um, business to business and capital markets, but also business to business to consumer as well as banks and big financial services incumbents start to use those services of fintechs to get them to service their consumers quicker. 
And so we had this point where we could continue to grow that organically. And I think the UK will continue to grow that organically and evolve and innovate its financial services ecosystem. And we have to, because everyone else is around the world. But also, you know, why I was a big fan of when the review was commissioned and Ron was asked to do that, it also gives us that chance to look back on what we've achieved, but then look at the true potential of what can be achieved next. Um, so this isn't just a matter of skills and just a matter of capital. It's also taking that moment in time to say, how about we start to look at this from a tech-led recovery? We start to look at it for people who've lost their jobs and need to refinance their debt, whether that's consumers or small businesses. Um, and for those who suddenly find that they are, they're tempted to go to a payday lender because they don't know that there's all these services out there that are available to them. So this isn't just unbanked or underbanked. It's actually showing the true potential of this sector and how that can actually help the man on the street, wherever they are around the UK, or the small business that's having to get back on their feet again post-COVID, or a business that wants to start but can't get a loan because perhaps the banks aren't as keen to give so many loans as they were before. And fintech has this defining moment now of showing that it works alongside the incumbents, but also it stands as a sector on its own. And you know, whether that's said, putting the customers first, you know, who, who, how do they want to interact with financial services, which has changed so dramatically over 10 years and probably just you know, changed again more than that in the last 12 months. Um, and where do we go now? But for us to continue on that trajectory uh, with the acceleration coming in since March last year, we're going to have to make some shift changes. We're going to have to find to fuel that talent because we don't want to put these jobs overseas because they're well-paid jobs. Why wouldn't we want to bring those into the UK? Um, and why wouldn't we want to leverage the talent up and down the country when before, as you said, it became a bit of a London phenomenon. And now we've just proved that actually, you know, you know, wherever you're based at the moment, it doesn't really make any difference. You could be at the end of my street or you could be in Edinburgh. It makes, you know, it's all the same. It's a huge leveller. And same with investment. It used to be, everyone talked about the £200 cup of coffee. You'd come down from Manchester, you'd have an hour meeting with a venture capitalist, find that they couldn't, you know, they didn't want to invest and you went back up again. I guess what we've discovered how to do that by Zoom pretty efficiently and it takes you 20 to 30 minutes. And so I think that's the huge opportunity we have ahead of us is we've got huge digitization. We've got fintech solutions that can be used for problems that we haven't even considered yet. But also we've got this regulation and policy um, you know, thought leadership in the UK that continues to evolve as well. So it's not just the regulatory sandbox. It's also the FCA set up the GFIN, you know, the Global Financial Innovation Network. They were the first people there. When Chris Willard was CEO, he was there leading the IOSCO FinTech network. Um, so just incredible to see our regulators and our government getting behind this. And I think the one thing I've been you know, pleasantly surprised at during, you know, maybe it's during the review and maybe it's as a result of COVID, probably a bit of both, is just how much interest there has been from, from those hubs overseas and what's happening in the review, but also across Whitehall. Um, so before, you know, I've talked to fairly, Treasury fairly regularly, talked to DIT fairly regularly, obviously, about you know, the opportunities for overseas. But suddenly we have lots of government departments saying, oh, is there a fintech solution for this? We hadn't thought about that before. We just used existing rails. We didn't know there was even the possibility of using somewhere else. And I know you've been doing some work on that as well. So if you can take stock of that and suddenly this review gives us this moment in time to say, look what the sector's achieved. It's going to need some support to really take it to its full potential. But if we get that right now, you know, we have the real chance of growing some huge global champions. We never quite got them in the tech sector, only a few. Um, real opportunity now to, to take that forward. And pretty exciting opportunities as well. Great. Ron? 
Yeah, look, I think I think what, what Charlotte's talking about is is critical. You know, the future of the whole sector, and I'm not talking fintech. I think you could almost turn it on its head and start talking about tech fin, because the common issues here are about technology. So there's an awful lot that's on the plate uh, in terms of what needs to be done. You know, think about digital ID, think about data strategy, think about um, the, the the need to ensure that we're starting to think about prioritizing smart data. Um, you know, crypto assets, artificial intelligence, what's the regulatory implications of uh, AI? I mean, these are things that we have to be at the forefront of thinking about. And I, I think that this is an opportunity as a moment in time. I think it's the way that Charlotte describes it is perfect. It is a moment in time for the UK to harness the 300 years of trust that's been built up in financial services uh, from a global point of view. It's a global standard that we've set. And actually make sure that we set the next standard so that we do set the protocols, we set the standards for some of these emerging things. You know, why shouldn't we be the ones that are clear about how to develop a central bank digital currency? What should the standards be? What should the protocols be? What, what, what does it mean to be a wholesale CBDC? What does it mean to have something in terms of a retail CBDC and how that would benefit individuals? These, don't, these aren't things which are going to happen, um, you know, possibly happen. They are going to happen. And the task is that we have to take the leadership position to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, winning is a weird way of positioning this. So, like, apologize up front in terms of it. It's like w- when you're in front, it's not often people find. I, I mean, I think there's some good old fashioned sort of British humility in this in terms of the way that you both are sort of describing it. But usually when somebody's really winning and out in the lead, they find it hard. I always kind of go back to sporting metaphors, but people find it difficult to get up and do the press-ups and the sit-ups when they're winning, right? But actually what I really love about this is we're in a great position. The industry is looking at itself and going, and I, and I think rightly so, almost going, look, there's some luck, there's some judgment, there's some timing, there's some talent. I mean, I'd love both of your views on, you know, talent is such a critical part of this. And obviously, talent as an industry, I mean, Charlotte, you touched on it a little bit with, you know, a few of the the changes. Obviously, we've seen Mark Carney leave the Bank of England. Mark Carney's been instrumental, I think, in terms of the changes and seeing us through some pretty hard times. We've seen Chris Willard leave the FCA. You know, these have been very important figures for championing not just innovation, but culture transformation within the Bank of England and the FCA. So I always think, you know, leadership is always really, really important in these places. It's the person on the front of the boat making sure that actually the transformation and the changes are really going, the boat is going in the right direction, right? Um, how do we ensure that actually we have the the right leadership very at top of these organizations to make sure that the direction of travel is consistent really with, Ron, your findings? Because I think your findings are, are really spot on in terms of, I think, you know, the ingredients that have kind of made the cake taste so good, which is, you know, UK fintech. But how do we ensure that actually this course is stuck to yeah, look, I think the reality is that, um, so I, I think these organizations, people are proud to work in these organizations. And importantly, they want UK PLC to thrive and succeed. So, you know, people aren't at the top of these organizations and thinking, well, actually, how do, I, how do we damage it? They want to build on the legacies of the past and actually create their own legacies. So um, whether it's Andrew Bailey or Nicola at the FCA, I know that they will think about not just my report, but importantly, how do we help to do that? But they've also got a responsibility in terms of a regulatory hat. And I think regulation is a really important facet of protection for consumers. 
So under no circumstances have I talked about the fact that, well, let's just do this and forget about regulation. This is about making sure regulation is appropriate and is fit for purpose for the next wave of activity. Because it is going to be important to start moving the rule book along. Because, you know, we're not constrained by Brexit anymore, by, by Europe. We can create our own Bible, our own agenda. And that's what I think we're going to start to look at much more. It doesn't happen overnight. So I think we have to be realistic in our uh, ambitions. But the point is, I think there's a willingness and an appetite to help to foster growth in these companies and actually to sort of make sure that we survive, not just to win, but actually that we become the sort of the standard for global financial services going forward. Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely the, when I when I read through findings, this was a, this is the time to thrive, not survive. Like this is the, that's the, the feeling that I got from this in terms of the, the opportunity. It's that difficult second album point though, right? Where we've done the, you know, the F's, the sandboxes and also all of these things have done so much to create the world that we live in. It's, maintaining that innovative mindset and actually moving those things forward. So, I mean, at that point, Kate, I'm going to bring you into the conversation because like, I think we've covered a lot there. Like there's a lot of, and there's a lot in that. And actually, I mean, Ron, when people read through the review as well, there's so much that actually, you know, it's called a review. I, f- I feel it's a manifesto. It's a manifesto for the next period of change that we're going to see in the industry. But Kate, what, what do you think? I mean, how, uh, obviously, I mean, we're, we live in this game, right? So it's uh, the change that we've seen. We've been part of this change as, as the, the world and the economy and everything that has really sort of flourished. But how do you feel about, I mean, it's, I feel weird you talking about Ron like he's not here again, but like, <laughs> how do you feel the change in the industry is going to come about? Well, yeah, I suppose it's, it's been, just been great to listen to Ron and Charlotte kind of chatting through their take on it so far. I suppose the parts of the review that I'm most interested, not just to kind of really, really read in detail, but see the industry's reaction to kind of the points around national connectivity and skills. Um, you know, obviously that's something that's been massively places we've touched on under the spotlight because of COVID. I'd be really intrigued to see or to hear how your thinking on that shifted throughout the course. And obviously this has taken a long time for you to compile as a review. I'm intrigued to see kind of how that thinking has, has shifted over time. Obviously a key strength of the UK in the past has been London as a hub and you know, having that that hub destination. But obviously one of the clear benefits of COVID is the ability for us to, as you've touched on, work remotely, for us to access skills and talent across the UK as a whole. So yeah, I'm really intrigued to see where we land on as that right balance between maintaining London as a hub, but also diversifying out into the rest of the UK um, and how we how we actively kind of support and maintain that after the uh, intensity of the current COVID period so that we don't just all default to jumping back onto trains and traipsing back into London. Now, how do we maintain that that national connectivity, which, as you say, is going to help us to, to really flourish? So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I live out in Norwich, so if we could make Norwich a fintech hub, like I'm, I'm all up for that one. But, uh, but no, yeah, I, I agree with you. Charlotte, Ron, I, I love your views. No, I, mean, I think it's, you know, if you look at just what's happening anyway, since it comes back to your organic growth, just how many universities are offering fintech courses now? And I remember, I think, Ron, when you and I first met, or whenever that was, it feels, it feels like an age ago because the review feels like five years long. But, you know, I remember you saying, oh, there's this fintech course in one of these universities. And we just didn't have that many fintech courses. Oxford Said was doing a bit of a, you know, a bit of an um, MBA, I think, on it. And suddenly every single university around the UK is, is running fintech courses. That isn't just degrees. Some of them are degrees. Some are courses where people can go and learn more about the sector. They can retrain short courses for degrees. And suddenly those same universities are going into sick forms and saying, look, here we are. This is, you know, have you heard about the sector? 
So I feel that we've got you know, this huge opportunity to just that, that push forward. And that, again, you know, fosters then innovation, just like it does on the West Coast, where people say, here's a problem I'm, I'm facing. And it might be a problem where you're seeing that problem in Manchester, but you're not seeing it in London. Um, you know, I remember seeing um, somebody who was paying by their, uh, the veins in their finger um, because they said, oh, well, when you're on campus, you, your battery runs out of phone. You have, your, your phone runs out of battery. So guess what? That doesn't help us if you have pay by phone. So let's find a different way around it. And they were doing that for the student population. So what's really important is that we have to not just nurture what's happening, obviously, in London and, and leverage talent around the country, but actually say, you know, what fintech or financial problems are we facing around the country? And maybe it's a local-based solution. And let's get those companies to grow there because the talent's there, the problem's there, the innovation's there. And good chances are there's a big financial services sector there as well because two-thirds of the jobs are outside of London. And I think you know, if we can get anywhere close to that, where we look at what's come out of what effectively was Silicon Roundabout and then spread out like a concentric circle, and then we have lots of other concentric circles coming out from universities, et cetera, problems there, then that's a major win for the sector. And I think you know, then the natural connectivity will come through. You're probably aware two years ago we set up this FinTech National Network with the FinTech associations around the UK because there was no coordination. So we would look at a bit, obviously, but had more of a London mindset. And obviously, it was really important that we had a completely different way. And obviously, you know, all those associations have fed in so deeply into the review to say, well, that might be fine for London, but actually, it's a completely different way of looking at it when we look outside of London. You know, so I think you know, it's, it's taken us to a level where I don't, I'm an eternal optimist, I don't think we're going back. I think it's going to snowball and it's going to get bigger and bigger and run quicker and quicker. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like you say, that tiny little roundabout was like the epicenter for it. But the, the ripples of... of Scary uh, thought of about Old Street the, being the epicenter, but anyway. Yeah, and, and for anybody who doesn't know it internationally, or anybody, you know, all of the people who listen to this uh, in far-flung places, it's literally a tiny little roundabout, but it did happen there and it started there. But actually, the you know, the idea that the, the benefit of this sort of rolls out to Manchester and Leeds and Edinburgh and Cardiff and all sorts of different far-flung places. I mean, Ron, this has got to be one of the... Uh, it's a sil- it's slither of a silver lining around COVID, but this has got to be one of the real benefits of that. Is like exactly as, as as Kate and Charlotte says, it's like it doesn't matter where you are at this stage. If you're good, you're good, and you can really add value to the industry. Yeah, look, I think this is not a story about London. This is a story about the UK, and I think it's really important because while the capital appears to be a super hub of fintech activity, we've actually identified a number of high growth clusters. Ten, actually who are all at different levels of maturity, exactly as Charlotte says. You know, some have started, but the thing is that there are some um, underpinning in terms of what are the foundational capabilities of these. The first one is that there's typically an existing financial services or a technology domain expertise, so that's, that's one. The second is that there are, and we mustn't forget the next piece, which is there are at least three higher educational establishments in the cluster area, and typically three to five fintech accelerators. So the potential uplift in terms of what this could do for GDP for the UK and the number of jobs is enormous. Um, so we've done quite a bit of thinking and work around that. Um, I can't say that Norwich is a high growth <laughs> cluster, but um, you know there's places very nearby to it, Cambridge, etc. I mean, um, I'm so, starting a petition know, straight after this. Like, what can I say? Like, uh, <laughs> but but it's uh, but but as you, as you say, the 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 ripples of creating those different hubs actually bleeds out. And while while Norwich is not the fintech capital of the world just yet, then actually the flags that you plant in all of these different places, it will get there. You know, and actually, as you say, you know, universities that are 
uh, embodying this level of change and this level of disruption. It's um, financial services and fintech is like the hottest industry on the planet. So everybody wants to work in this space, right? Absolutely right. All right. On that note, we we better move on because I think we could talk about this forever, but there is definitely a few other things that have been happening this week. So next up, we have a story that was over on Finextra first. So this is Basic brings open banking to bear on consumers buy now, pay later debt after Afterpay teams up with Stripe. So Basic, a NAB, Westpac, Salesforce and Plaid backed open banking platform is introducing a new feature for lenders to aggregate outstanding consumer loans to get more visibility into consumer liabilities. Basic external liabilities package surfaces loans data from over 100 financial institutions across Australia, most popular for buy now, pay later platforms and those alternative lenders as well. I mean, this is a pretty interesting, buy now, pay later seems to be like just a, you know, we were talking about ripples earlier on, but it is just exploded everywhere in terms of the success of it. I mean, Kate, what do you think on this one? Is this a... This has got some pretty impressive backers. So it feels like this is unlikely to not do well, right? Yeah. Um, well, obviously, I mean, talking about Australia, I feel like Sarah Shansky should be here because it's her favourite market to chat about. But I suppose I'm going to talk about, I think, Afterpay and Stripe in a minute. But I think the coexistence of these two stories I find fascinating because I think it illustrates really nicely the reason why Buy Now, Pay Later is, is so um, relevant right now. You know, on one hand, there's obviously massive customer demand for this service and Stripe and Afterpay partnering up to enable more merchants to offer it sort of to customers directly at the point of sale proves that. But on the other hand, I think we're also waking up to the fact that there is there are increasing problems of customers getting out of their depth with buy now, pay later, um, you know, particularly when you end up with accounts that are distributed across multiple different platforms. And the fact that Basic are now offering this service where you can consolidate or have a, a clearer view of those different liabilities across different providers, I think shows the need for these these two services side by side. So I think if they can develop at the same pace, then maybe they'll sustain and support each other and kind of get a better customer balance. But I suppose my worry is that Buy Now, Pay Later has had such a massive head start. You know, it's so well entrenched in Australia already. Um, and we're only now just starting to understand and attempt to address some of these really significant debt issues that customers are facing that Basic are obviously trying to tap into. So um, yeah, that the two stories coexisting, I think, is is really interesting. Mm. I mean, as you say, the the sort of industry has had a pretty decent head start on this, hasn't it? Uh, I mean, you don't get to get Snoop Dogg as a spokesperson uh, in the way that Klarna has done unless it's going rather well, you know. So uh, uh, it's kind of interesting. And obviously, um, a couple of weeks ago, we had um, Chris Wallard and the FCA coming out saying, you know, we're going to have to take a, a closer view on this from a regulatory perspective and actually take a more, as, again, as we were talking about earlier on, Charlotte and Ron, a, a more of a progressive view of how this works and how we get closer to this because it's you know it's an important part of the fabric of what fintech is but i mean charlotte what do you what do you think on this do you buy now pay later i guess is is a phenomenon that's not going away uh, you're right it's not going away and uh, as you say it gives people really easy access to evening out their payments that isn't a bad thing in itself as long as you understand what debt you're getting into and as you said you know, the multiple platforms is where it gets very complicated so if anything, we just have to make sure we're educating what people are. Just like you used to take out, I remember when I first bought my flat and I think I maxed out my credit card 
and said, okay, how can I pay out that credit card at the end of the month? And then I can buy a sofa the next month and max it out again. Um, but you sort of knew what you were doing because credit cards were I, very I obvious. I want to point out, this is not financial advice, Charlotte. I just want to <laughs> be clear to everybody listening, right? Uh, <laughs> not that but no, we've all been there. Yeah. But, you know, but it, it was interesting. And you, you looked at that percentage you had and said, okay, I can't afford to miss a payment or if I'm doing the minimum payment. It was very obvious. And you know, the challenge, I think, for most people with buy now, pay later is when they make that purchase, they believe they're obviously in that financial position to be paying it back over the amount of time. And you've made that decision there. And then, um, you know, the problem with COVID, obviously, is the un- future's a little uncertain at the moment. So the more transparency we can give to people so they don't end up in debt on one platform, another one, and another one, and we end up these aggregator that gives them information on what that means to them, that's got to be a good thing. Um, and I, so it's, uh, you know, they, they will be an important part of it. And there's nothing wrong with people spending their money on all, you know, shopping, shopping platforms and using this, but let's really make sure that we're helping them understand you know, the debt they've got, as I said, especially across multiple platforms. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in, in the world that we're in, you know, people spending and the economy starting to to move and turn is is a great thing. But as you say, the understanding is the and the education around this is a, a form of you know debt in inverted commas. Inverted commas never work very effectively on a podcast. I'm just going to say, but uh, but them understanding it is really important. Ron, what do you think? Look, I think I think in many ways it is another form of debt, and I don't think we should think about it in it differently. It's basically um, additional debt, if you want to think of it that way, on top of credit, a credit card debt rental arrears or whatever. So people have got to be really thoughtful about it. There's a danger that what we end up doing is um, going into these. And I think these are good innovative solutions. My background is payment. So I tend to think of this as a very positive thing. But we've got to make sure there's some guardrails for consumers and for people who are using this. Because absent of that, we're going to end up in a very different place. And then we're going to end up with a different challenge where people start to say, well, actually, Look at this type of fintech problem that was being created. So we've got to be thoughtful about how this works. Responsible lending, because that's essentially what it is, will be determined by the models that these guys have got in terms of how they develop their their business. So um, regulation is important uh, in it, to the earlier point I made uh, to the point I made earlier. Yeah, I mean that that's where actually uh, I mean to the fairness of the people who are in this space. That's where I've actually started to see people like Klarna doing. Uh, uh, you know they're not quite self-regulating, but they are. They are very much taking a, a a much more sort of sustainable approach to this in terms of what they're looking to do, and they're offering up suggestions. They're I know they're you know working with the regulator to in a, in a very similar way. I mean, Ron, you touched on this a little bit earlier on, but I mean, Oak North. Uh, worked with the FCA to make sure that cloud was a thing that was they were comfortable with. I wonder if Klarna and different players in the buy now pay later space working with the regulators to work the model that works uh, really effectively. You know, it's not really about what the FCA wants or what Klarna wants or you know other buy now pay later's. It's what works for the consumer. But you know that collaboration again is uh, is an important factor, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and these are important products. So I think these are innovative products. These are clever products. They're using data. They're, they're, they're using the science that's available to lend. But people have to know what they're getting into. And there's some great companies. You know, you talk about Klarna, ClearPay, Labor. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these around. And I think it will continue to grow. Because in many ways, I think the activities as it relates to merchant um, acquisition, um, in terms of payment acquisition, pay, payment acquiring, is going to be much more about creating that sort of single dimension between the merchant and the consumer. So I can see that coming very, very closely. So it won't be a B2B play. It'll essentially be a B2B2B2C play. 
Indeed. All right, moving on then. Next story that we had was over on Reuters. So this is, we name-checked him earlier on, but former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney joins the board of Stripe. I think this was, a, I mean, I was quite surprised at this one because, um, I mean, Mark has been out um, talking so heavily about climate change. I thought he'd fall, like forgot about financial services for a little while, but uh, clearly the, the passion still burns bright for him. So this is uh, Carney, uh, who headed the Bank of England and the Bank of Canada, had a 13-year career before that at Goldman Sachs as well. So he is also, as I, as I mentioned, part of what the uh, United Nations is doing as special envoy on climate action and finance. Carney joined Stripe days after the company was reported to be planning a funding round valuing it at over $100 billion. Like anybody who thinks, and you talk about it, Ron, anybody who doesn't think payments is interesting, like Stripe is worth $100 billion. So uh, the, the mark uh, is quoted here as saying, Regulated in multiple jurisdictions and partnering with several dozen financial institutions around the world, Stripe will absolutely benefit from Mark's... Uh, this isn't Mark saying it about himself. That would just be weird. Uh, Stripe will benefit from Mark Carney's extensive experience of uh, global financial systems and governance. I mean, what do you think on this one, Kate? you got a bit of a soft spot for Mark Carney, haven't you? I'm going to I'm gonna embarrass you and point it out on the podcast. But like, uh, uh, what, what do you think to, to Mr. Carney joining Stripe? I thought we weren't going to talk about my slightly inappropriate crush on Mark Carney. I no, I couldn't help bring it. it up. I'm sorry. He's just got such a beautiful voice. It's just, yeah. Anyway, it's very it's, soothing. It's that, it's that smooth Canadian twang. Like, it, it just is. does it, doesn't it? It is. But putting that aside, yeah, I can see this is a, I think this is obviously it's a bold move from, from Stripe. But it obviously, if you're going to go out for a funding round and value yourself at $100 billion, it doesn't hurt to have some pretty uh, prestigious names on on your board and and that's certainly kind of a box that, that mark ticks um yeah, we've talked a lot about you talked about his connection to um you know, climate change and kind of climate action sort of focus but i know i noticed recently stripe have just launched their climate proposition globally i think they started in, in the us but they've now kind of rolled that out globally so kind of enabling their merchants to um you know bring through carbon removal purchase directly into their into their checkouts so i guess you know stripe have some have some credit there as well and that's obviously a, a route they're looking to expand so they're trying to kind of build that climate action into their into their merchant offering which you know certainly when it was launched was was pretty uh, new and pretty different versus what other people were doing so and they're in a great position to try and enable you know all of their merchants to contribute towards fighting climate change so i can guess that that might be something that mark might have supported as well Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? And, and, and I wonder if this just points to a, a point in the cycle where we are as well, right? We've seen, you know, Mark Carney joining the board of uh, uh, of Stripe. You know, we've seen great appointments at Revolut. We've seen, you know, TS over at Monzo. We've seen, you know, real great appointments. Is I mean, Charlotte, is this the... Is this the industry just growing up a little bit and actually getting to the point where there are big industry problems and actually bringing in people with the real experience of dealing with them is really important, right? I, mean, I think you're totally right there. It's, it's absolutely about choosing the right board for the right time of your growth. Too many people, in my view, go too early on the big heavyweights. And then actually you realize that's a great, it's a great press announcement. Actually, are you getting the maximum out of that board member for maybe their term? Um, you know, Stripe's a pretty mature company now. It's making some you know, serious changes around the world um, and getting an appointment and you know, having a coup of, of hiring Mark Carney is, you know, is a big win for them. We, we obviously saw with Mark you know, doing the future finance report. You know, I, th I, think he, I think he's got a still a bit of a fintech love in there. I don't think it's gone completely over to climate change. 
and obviously there's greening finance and there's financing green so climate change is obviously intertwined with this um but i think we will continue to see this as these companies go to you know multi-billion dollar companies operating in countries across the world with payments especially in payments where it's really complicated as we know cross-border payments this isn't something that's easy and you can't just hire someone with uk payments experience and expect them to help you to to expand into emerging markets, into developed markets you know, across Asia and US, you need to have people without experience. And, and who better to who better to advise you on that one than uh, Mr. Carney himself? But also, I think you need talk coming back to that green agenda. We are no doubt going to see so many fintech solutions coming into the the green tech part of that, and we're already starting to see that now. We've seen big banks partner with with fintechs to show more transparency to millennials who really want to know where their savings are or how they're saving, you know, chopping up their savings into green um, and ESG. And certainly, you know, we work closely with Green Finance Institute, the Impact Investing Institute, and we're seeing that agenda come closer together all the time now. Um, certainly, we're taking a day in UK Fintech Week in April to really explore that. So, you know, I think there's plenty for him to, to focus on the green side, but as I said, it's, it's a global payments company and you need to therefore have people with global payments experience. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You, that point you make around sort of sustainability in ESG, like, uh, I mean, it goes back, uh, I don't want to keep, like, Ron, I feel like I'm just talking about you again, just because you, you're here, like, I'd be saying this stuff anyway. But the fact that actually people now have choice means propositions can actually have differentiation, right? So, you know, I mean, it, it, and it's not just fintechs, like NatWest have been doing this stuff in terms of transactional behavior and understanding how green is your spending, you know? So it, it is interesting once you sort of fan those flames of competition and actually the the ability for people to have, to, well, not the ability, the absolute mandate that people actually have to start differentiating on service at that stage is uh, is really interesting. But Ron, what do you think about Mark and Stripe? What, what's, uh, do you think this is a good move on the, the part of, uh, uh, I guess, of both of them? Because look, the Bank of England is not a, a fintech startup. So, I mean, there's got to be some parts of Mark that might be a little bit uncomfortable about joining a, you know, a high growth startup. Uh, is he ditching the suits and like rolling up his sleeves and uh, getting involved, do you think? Or, or is this a sort of a meeting of minds? Look, I think Mark is a visionary. He has been seeing the way the world works. As Charlotte says, he was very instrumental in driving the future finance report, which he did a couple of years ago. And that was a groundbreaking piece of work from the Bank of England. It was actually starting to set the standards to, to the earlier points earlier. Payments, look, is really a global business. It's not a domestic business any longer. And there are only going to be probably four or five global players who will succeed in the merchant space. Uh, Stripe undoubtedly will be one. Um, I'd like to think that FIS and WorldPay will be one, given my history. Um, and I, I suspect that, you know, Adian and people like that will also be there. But where Mark will be able to bring a perspective is that he's exceptionally practical. He's got a great lens of regulatory perspectives, but also his understanding of monetary policy and how that impacts is going to be so important because the regulatory landscape that the likes of Stripe and others have got to cope with is just challenging. And understanding what, what the payments landscape is like in Russia is very different than what the payments landscape is in Brazil. So, you know, understanding the different um, types of switches that are around now. He won't need to understand all of that stuff. The Collison brothers, who are the founders there, will understand that more than enough. But he'll be able to help them navigate some of these really challenging waters so that they become, I think, a, a global prominent player uh, for the future. 
And it's not just about payments. You know, the way they think about it is that they want to take this into so many different directions. As Kate says, they've started to launch a green proposition, which is very innovative in terms of what they're trying to do. They've, they launched something called Stripe Climate Tool, I think it was what it was called, which basically allows customers to contribute to carbon, carbon reduction companies as a percentage of their purchases. Now, that's quite an enlightened activity um, in terms of where, they've, where they're going to try and take this business. So I think there's, there's a more natural fit than people might realize. Yeah. I mean, personality-wise, I think it's really interesting because, like, you know, market, uh, uh, you know, you don't be the governor of Bank of England without, uh, you know, feeling good about yourself, but he's, like, super down-to-earth guy, right? Patrick Collinson, uh, we've had on the show before, incredibly down-to-earth human being. Like, I, I think... Uh, I think we're all just a bit envious that we don't get to be in those board board meetings, don't we? Because I just think it would be such an amazing experience to see really the the thought process and where they really go to next. But uh, I think one thing's for sure is like Stripe are doing an amazing job. So uh, I know we've reached out to Patrick and we've reached out to Mark. So hopefully we'll get some comment on from those guys shortly. All right. Next up, we have a story that was over on Finextra, which is Brex files for bank charter. So Brex, the corporate credit card for startups, has filed for a industrial bank charter in the US. So the company has submitted an application with the uh, FDIC uh, and the Utah Department of Financial Institutions to establish Brex Bank. The new bank intends to expand upon Brex's existing suite of financial services offerings, uh, which was loans and FDIC-insured deposit products to SMBs without the need to rely on an intermediary bank. Now, this is really interesting. I mean, Kate, we've talked about the, uh, and, and actually, uh, you know, the UK fintech See, I'm bringing it back to the report again, Ron. See what I'm doing? But the, the UK fintech explosion was based on the regulatory ability, you know, lowering of the barrier of entry, allowing new charters, new opportunities. But Kate, the, the US has, has been built on uh, more older banks sharing licenses, you know, the Cross Rivers and, uh, you know, Kansas Cities, the various different uh, banks that have sort of lent out regulatory capability. But we've started to see, you know, Varo and now people like Brex actually start to cut those guys out a little bit. Is this a, I mean, is this a big deal that Brex is doing this? But also, is this a, a sign of things to come? Um, yeah, as you say, we've started to see more fintechs in the US you know, who have started off with that partnership model as they've become more established and they've kind of, I suppose, reached a, a state of maturity, look to try and go down the, the licensing path themselves directly. I mean, we've talked about on the show a lot what the kind of huge astronomical cost is of that process. It's something that you can't just gamble on doing in the US you know, from day one. So I think it makes sense that we've seen companies have this trajectory of, you know, find your market fit, find your, your customer base and, and then go for it. And Brex, I think, has had a huge amount of success with customers. You know, they've they've really identified that niche of high growth startups and they're sort of very highly regarded in the industry. You know, I was talking to a, a CEO of a, a sort of a crypto startup just for Christmas and he was saying that, you know, their relationship with, with Brex was the one part of his team's financial service setup that they weren't complaining about. You know, they've just really understood how to serve that kind of high growth business um, and they've they've set up really really well for that so to me I think we've sort of talked a little bit in the, in the intro about you know whether this is about enabling them to do lending differently or if it's just about the deposits 
I'm guessing it's just sort of enabling them to take control of that deposit base so that they've got you know, more control over their over their balance sheet and they can start to think about their, their product set differently. Um, but yeah, so it's a long, a long road to go down. Um, so we'll we'll see how long it takes them to get there. But it's, it's certainly not a surprise to see, given that we've seen, as you say, Varo make similar moves. Mm. I mean, it's, I wonder if it's, like you say, control over the balance sheet, but also getting the unit economics at a place where actually you can create a, you know, sustainable profitability. Because, you know, if you've got all of these, in, it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a negative to the movement from a bank as a service perspective, because I guess, you know, we have seen uh, community banks or regional banks, uh, you know, essentially what we would call a national bank is essentially like a super regional bank over in the US, right? So the scale is is really, really significant. But this sort of cutting out of that intermediary layer uh, has only got to be a benefit, again, you know, to the end consumer, because the economics of running that organization will be, be better off for it. I, I think the the really interesting thing, I, I think, underneath this is, is always down to, I mean, this is Brex having to have risk controls, compliance management, like all of like the big boy banking stuff that actually is uh, really the things that fintech has sort of shied away from a little bit over in over in the US. But um, what, what do you think, Charlotte? Uh, is this, uh, again, uh, almost a, I mean, this is the industry sort of growing up a little bit in the US, but, but it's a big step. You know, this is stabilizers off when you've got your own license, right? I think it is a big step, but you know, when we look at when we look at fragmentation of new products, so we take back to tech days in the late nineties, you saw all of these niche products taking one small part of it, and eventually you either have consolidation in those, um, or you end up you know, it's not just consolidation within the vertical, but it's consolidation across the horizontal as you start to to build out. And we're already starting to see this in into UK fintech as others look, look to go into other parts of of banking as well. So in some ways, I'm not totally surprised about it as you said to you be careful what you wish for it comes with its own its own issues um you know that bank license is not easy in the us it's fragmented regulators etc as we all know um but for the sector to mature i am absolutely certain that you know people are going to start with one one part of it and that may be alternative lending it may be credit cards and then they're going to build out and so in some way that i think it's just it's an evolution of where we come from next and you, who's who's going to take? Who's going to be the next ten, ten big names across US fintech, across UK fintech that are offering that layer of services across it, um, and then commanding those really big valuations to drive that forward? Um, there's a lot of focus here about rich profitability. You know, can you be profitable in that one niche? You've got to be. You've got to be pretty dominant in that, that one niche to be profitable. So, are we going to again see more expansion um, across the horizontal into more services once you've captured that crucial market share? Yeah, I think that, as you say, that that transition from horizontal to vertical is happening in loads of different layers in that space, isn't it? And it's it's really interesting the the organisations that we've seen, uh, you know, do that. I mean, Varo's, you know, a, a, a British CEO, like it's a, it, and actually the exports there, you know, we've seen N26 set up over in the US and Monzo set up in the US and. I mean, Revolut is everywhere at this stage, albeit, uh, uh, you know, it's just amazing to see that uh, that change. I mean, Ron, I imagine with a lot of the things that you've looked at, you've been looking not only at our uh, ingredients in the ecosystem, but the, the other e- uh, ecosystems as well that have built up around it. So, you know, the US is quite a different setup than where we are. How do you see this type of changes where, you know, full regulatory charters are now starting to be uh, distributed? 
Yeah, look, I think it's inevitable simply because technology and data is what's driving it. If you think about the sort of the, the Brex proposition, what, what's currently happening is that um, they'll have a bunch of small businesses. They, those small businesses will be banking and going to different organizations for their solutions. Um, and a banking license t- typically will make it much easier to provide one set of finance uh, solutions for their clients. So that's the way that they'll be trying to handle it. But key to that will be the fundamentals of banking. You know, is it, is it credit worthy? Is it understood? And actually, does the data support lending it? Now, their data are probably their data models are probably more sophisticated as a consequence of it. The the challenge I think for many of these organisations is actually how do they test themselves and how do they stress test themselves so that when there is a crisis and there will be ups and downs as there will be in any economic cycle. Um, that they can cope with it. So that's the piece that I always you know, look for in terms of how have they done their stress test to make sure that they're not looking at it through a lens of a sample of you know, 10,000 customers, but actually what happens when you've got 100,000? What happens when you've got a million? What happens when you've got 5 million? Because that's really when the rubber hits the road. But, but the, the, I think the, the, the reality here is that we're going to see many more of these. I think um, Square was a company recently that also was approved in terms of... So this is just... You know, not a an evolu- a revolution. It's about basically an evolution where companies of this sort are going to be because they've got access to data, they want to get to scale, and they've got the ability to kind of service uh, consumers and and small businesses through one lens. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That I mean, that point you make about uh, scaling. You know, we've seen in other industries, we've seen you know social media come in and like scale like you know we've seen you know the media change it you know spotify come in and disrupt distribution for media and scale you know youtube like all of these different and actually um myself and uh, jason bates one of the the founders at 11fs was having this conversation with a ceo of a uk bank two weeks ago and uh, and it's like yeah we're going to double the customers on this thing and it's like great well your model is you're now going to have to double your call center and maybe double the because of the way in which that model has been set out. I, I don't think uh, the place that we're in in the journey for fintech right now, everything looks quite close. But actually, if you double a model where actually predominantly most of your services and operations are infinitely, you know, web scale, infinite scalability, and your customer support model is predominantly digital rather than physical, then actually the world is your oyster at that stage, you know, actually, you know, Chime and Varo and, uh, you know, all of these different players in the US, like the US is a big place. But if you've got web scale digital technology, then actually you really can achieve those things. So it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, again, the fast forward from here five years and the landscape will look really, really different, I think, in all of these different hubs. But uh all right, guys, there's a, a thousand other stories that we probably should have covered as the, the course of the week. I mean, again, in fintech, there's so much stuff happening all of the time, uh, but we didn't get a chance to cover all of these guys, but we do feel like we should sort of shout them out a little bit. So, Kate, do you want to start with uh, one of the ones that was up first? Yeah, sure. So this story is over at Fintech Futures. So UK Black-owned challenger Atmen is to launch in March. So Atmen, the first black British-led bank uh, startup is gearing up to launch its remittance service and prepaid debit card next month. With no black-owned high street or digital banks ever created in the UK, Atmen will be the first. It plans to expand into current accounts, lending, savings and investments, including cryptocurrency. They've started out with a focus on serving minority black consumers and black-owned businesses in the UK and receiving countries 
but its co-founders have stressed that their services will be open to all kinds of consumers and businesses and that their employee base will be equally inclusive. So you know, this is really exciting to see happening in the UK. You know, we talked on this show last year about Greenwood Financial in the US, their launch. You know, they seem to be ramping up really well so far, fingers crossed. I think based on the last figures I saw in January, they've generated 500,000 signups in the first 100 days since since they launched in October. So it's clear that there's a real appetite in the US for minority-owned challenges that are orientated first and foremost around serving the specific needs of minority communities. But it will be really interesting to see what the uptake of that is like in the UK. You know, obviously, the UK and the US, as we've talked about, are very different countries, but we have our own problems with uh, systemic racism, financial inequality. Um, we're just about to have our next census, but you know, as of 2011, there were you know, 1.85 million black people in the UK, just over a million of those in London alone. So clearly that community has been underserved in the past. It needs to be better represented within our financial services. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how they do. And hopefully we can get them on the show and, and talk to them a bit about what they're planning to do in the future. Absolutely. I was chatting to both of the, the founders on LinkedIn this week. So we're definitely going to get them on the show and uh, learn a little bit more about the proposition, what they're doing, how they're going about it. And next up, we had TransferWise rebrands itself as WISE. I mean, if you're going to lose one of them, you don't want to lose the wise part of that, I guess, do you? It's uh, it's like Google losing the don't be evil. It'd just be weird at that stage, wouldn't it? Uh, so TransferWise is rebranded as Wise to shift the focus off its brand to reflect the wider array of banking products that it now provides. Our customers now need us for more than just money transfers, explains their CEO. Uh, the firm now has a customer base of 10 million users and offers a deeper suite of services, including borderless banking uh, and just a whole swathe of other things that they're doing. I mean, it's an interesting move, isn't it? I mean, it goes back a little bit to what Charlotte was saying earlier on is, uh, I mean, we always kind of make the make the sort of distinction, is it a feature or is it a product? And actually, I think, you know, TransferWise was a feature at scale. And actually what they're doing is taking that opportunity. And I mean, 10 million users is not anything to be sniffed at globally. So they're now pivoting that into full universal banking opportunities, which is uh, really, again, a, a point that we are in that cycle. So great to see on this one. It'll be interesting to see really what they come out with next. Like you say, the borderless account has done really, really well, but there's so much more things that they can do to, to serve the customers that they've got. What's next, Kate? Uh, next up, uh, for Nextra, Nationwide have launched a startup challenge and an incubator to tackle the poverty premium. So Nationwide Building Society has launched a startup challenge and business incubator program calling for ideas to help tackle the so-called poverty premium, which sees poor people pay more for essential services. It is also investing £2.5 million in the Fair by Design Fund, a venture fund pumping capital into businesses, making markets fairer. According to Fair by Design, the lowest paid Brits are subject to a poverty premium of up to an extra £478 a year year for essentials due to increased cost of services and access to finance and the numbers of households affected is on the up sadly thanks to COVID-19 as almost 700,000 additional people face poverty during the Q4 of 2020 as a result of the pandemic so yeah I think for all the many 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 downsides of COVID in the UK at least it has hopefully drawn greater attention to the levels of poverty that persist in in modern day Britain um, and we know that the poorest in society are paying over the odds in many aspects of their lives because businesses prefer to transact understandably with customers who have stable fixed incomes or the ability to pay for goods or services up front so I'm looking forward to seeing the types of ventures that apply for the program we know that Nationwide have a track record of helping to support early stage ventures that are doing things 
that maybe sit outside the traditional commercial comfort zone. So, you know, we've had uh, Tuco, for example, on, on the show a lot. You know, they were beneficiaries of their open banking for good initiative. Uh, and they're now doing great work helping people with long term mental health problems to manage their, their money better. So, yeah, if you're listening and you've got a great idea for supporting people on low incomes, then maybe this is something that you should check out. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? And as I guess as nationwide positioning, you know, a building society and, you know, they're, they're very values driven in terms of what that means and, and what their role is from a societal perspective, then uh, this sort of fits really nicely, doesn't it, with their their sort of vision of, of really what they want to do to, to help people? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, and uh, I mean, I, I can't believe I'm transitioning from that, like all of that great goodness to what I'm about to talk about now, which is the Anne Finally story. So this is Michael Bolton wants you to break up with your brokerage. Never thought I'd be saying those words together in a sentence, let alone in front of you, Ron and Charlotte, I'll be honest. But uh, all right. So this is a, a new ad for public.com featuring Michael Bolton singing, How Can I Trade Without You? Thought about singing it, decided it was a bad idea. So we're going to move on. So this is clearly the uh, to the tune of How Can I Live Without You? To lure potential customers to public away from Robinhood. Obviously, with everything that's been happening in uh, recent months, uh, with everything that happened with GameStop, Robinhood have been somewhat under the pressure. Uh, so Public says that they are unlike all of the other stock trading apps and are on a mission to open the market to everybody by making it inclusive, educational and fun. Its investors and advisors include NFL star JJ Watt, skateboarding legend Tony Hawk and Will Smith. So bringing in some extra celebrity status with Michael Bolton is probably not too far off for, for this brand. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? We seem to have like a real, I mean, this is funny, but we seem to have a like a weird influx into celebrities endorsing financial services stuff, right? I mean, I'm not sure I've ever tried to put Michael Bolton and Anton Deck in the same thing, but like Anton Deck advertising Santander, like, you know, is this a, is this a way that, you know, fintech trying to get mainstream adoption? We obviously talked about, you know, Snoop Dogg and the Klarna thing. Kate, is, is this just a, as marketing budgets in these organizations gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, is this just like a natural evolution that people use to to sort of create credibility and, and brand halo from these people? I'm not sure we can associate this story of anything that would describe as a natural evolution. It was It's just quite bizarre to, to watch really. But yeah, no, I totally agree. We're seeing more and more companies just think about their marketing spend differently. You know, we've, we've talked on the show several times, especially in our finally stories about different sort of novelty uh, things. So we think we talked the last time I was on the show about you know, millions, I think, which is signing up and you just sign up and you can, we'll pay you to sign up. And um, people are sort of taking that more direct approach of I'd rather give my money directly to consumers rather than paying into, into Facebook and, and Google for advertising. So yeah, I think the kind of combination of maybe the pushback against uh, giving, giving money to Facebook and Google and also kind of the appeal of something that maybe is a little bit more quirky and more likely to gain natural traction uh, is all contributing towards this. But yeah, I, I'm, it was very bizarre to watch. I didn't actually know who Michael Bolton was before I watched it, which probably is... <laughs> means I'm not their target audience, but yeah. Uh, I mean, as soon as we get off this, I'm sending you a Spotify playlist you need to get on board with. But uh, like, I can't believe you never heard of Michael Bolton. I, I'm I'm almost, uh, I'm questioning our recruitment policy at 11FS straight out the gate. So uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later, Kate, okay? Okay. Um, I mean... 
Ron, I like I hate to ask you this question because like it just seems so trifling in the, in the circumstances. But like, did you think about a celebrity endorsement for the report? Because like, I, I mean, uh, like I know, I mean, Kanye West. I know he's just got d- divorced from Kim, so like he probably had a bit of time on his hands, right? He would have been a great person to get out there. Sadly, the budget that was uh, driving the review just didn't take it that far. But I think I think there is a there's a linkage here to Michael Bolton, which is that you know fintech has been styled as a way to sort of empower people. And that's basically where populism has started from in many ways, right? So when you think about what what he's been doing, this is essentially populism taking force. Um, So I think there's a natural link to think about him as a fintech pioneer as well. Ron, maybe not. Maybe not. I'm not sure I can agree with you on that one. But, uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at the, you know, there's these new, this new concept of finfluencers, you know, which is the latest buzzword. Um, and I know when we were tagging some of the, um, some of the big celebrity uh, investors, so Snoop Dogg, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ashton Kutcher, I mean, you name it, you roll them off the top. Um, and maybe the one for the younger viewers is, is Charlie D'Amelio. So I shall test you if you know which, um, you know, which uh, fintech she's, She's promoting. She has 100 million followers on TikTok, 100 million. So suddenly my daughter thinks that fintech is quite cool. And actually, I do have quite a good job because, you know, I'm, I'm in fintech and, you know, she's promoting fintech. You know, so maybe maybe not Michael Bolton. We may need to go for a younger audience. Yeah, you've got to, got to aim at the right audience, haven't you? And, <laughs> and if anything, if we can make our kids think we work in a cool industry, like I think that's got to be the uh, got to be the aim of the game, isn't it? But I mean, I, I think this is, as you say, Ron, I think this is really interesting because it's uh, the the sort of... Uh, democratization and popular nature of what we're doing, you know, I think it again is just a sign that the industry is getting to a point where it's it's not this uh, cool band nobody else has heard of. Like this is stuff's getting mainstream now, which is uh, which is really exciting because that was the whole point in the first place, right? Yeah, and the reality is that people are using it all the time. I mean, I think that's the bit that's really key that you know we're seeing these solutions being used by people, and they don't think about it as a fintech solution. It's it's an app. It might be something they're doing as part and parcel of their everyday life. Definitely, it's just financial services now, right? It doesn't roll. It doesn't sound as fun though. Like if the kids in school are like, "I'm going to get into financial service," like getting into fintech sounds as sexy. And and if nothing, we're learning from Michael Bolton that good branding and being a little bit sexy is important. I think that's the rule. I think that's what we've learned from all of this, Kate. Don't you? I'm still. So does Michael Bolton count as sexy? Is that what we're saying? Is that kind of what we're wrapping the show? I mean, I think, he, I think he has that certain allure to him. He definitely okay. has a sense of humour, like, and, and that can be seen as being sexy, can't it? Okay. Well, I'll stick with, my, with Mark Carney and you can have Michael Bolton, <laughs> and that's that's fair. Fair enough. All right. We, we better go on the emails and let them know then. All right. On that note, that wraps up this show. I hope you guys have had fun. We definitely have had fun uh, making it. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Ron, and the report that you've put out? Um, so I think, Charlotte, you're putting some stuff out uh, through Innovate Finance in terms of reports. It'll be on Innovate Finance's website. It'll be on the City of London Corporation's website. Um, and you know, it's being splashed all over Twitter as well. So just look it up in terms of Khalifa Fintech Review. Fantastic. And Charlotte, where can people learn more about you and everything you're doing at Innovate Finance? Um, yeah, probably best on best on Twitter if you want to get to me directly. So that's at C Crosswell. Um, uh, on the Innovate Finance account is at Infin, so I double N F I N. And Treasury, also, if you want to go to uh, gov.uk, you'll also find the FinTech review there as well. Um, so you should be able to find it. If anyone has a problem, they can come to me. Very good. Kate, where can people learn more? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Moody on LinkedIn or on Twitter as well at K8Moody. Very good. 
And Mr. Bolton, if you are listening to this, you can find me on david at 11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you have liked what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review as it really helps us make the show better. Uh, As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media channel at this stage, or you can email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. This was a lot of fun. Goodbye, guys.